sort of tells us something about where we're going. Are we supposed to be ministers of the gospel or entrepreneurial explorers of the spiritual wilderness? Put that on your business card. So what I want us to see in one passage, two verses, is something very simple. I want to encourage everyone here that a normal ministry preaches Christ. It aims for maturity. And it works hard. And that's it. I mean, a lot more can be said. Right? We write books on it. We go to conferences on it. We think deeply on it. We get mentored or we coach others but a normal ministry preaches Christ, it aims for maturity, and it works hard. We see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Listen, we proclaim him, Jesus. We proclaim Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what your word says and for what your word does. And we're trusting you, God, to go to work in our hearts, in our souls, in our marriages, in our churches, that we would increasingly become the normal kind of Christians that you've designed us to be. Help us and teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, look, somebody brought me a stand I don't need. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. So anywho, I walk around a lot. I don't use a pulpit. I'm too little for a pulpit. So we have like music stands at my church, and I don't use that because I kind of walk all over the... So I just, uh, I just, I just hold, hold my Bible. Um, all right, so... We look at this passage, we see these three things, right? Like a normal ministry, it preaches Christ, it aims for maturity, and it works hard. So first of all, let's just be real simple here. Can we, can we do this? To, can I keep it super simple? We preach Jesus, right? Do you preach Christ? That's what we're supposed to do. We preach Christ, we proclaim him. This is not a discussion. We don't discuss Jesus. Uh, we don't dialogue about Jesus. I mean, we do those things. We do those things in our small groups, and we do those things when we're out in the, in, in the coffee shops or the cigar lounge or wherever we're at where we're meeting people. We, we have open dialogues, yes, but as pastors, as ministers, as normal pastors, what we do is we proclaim, we herald, we announce Jesus. That's what we do. There is room for discussion and for asking questions and answering questions, but what we are called to do is to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior, to make them clear, to make them obvious. It's an announcement. And if we say that we preach Jesus, the implication here is that we are expositors of the Scripture. Expositors. Now, to exposit Scripture, there... Every, we all can get this wrong very, very easily, right? Even people that love expository preaching and they love John MacArthur and they're, they're into Lagos Bible software, uh, like even people that are into exposition blow expositional preaching all the time. Because what they do is oftentimes it's easy for us to turn our preaching into running commentary. 
So we read a bunch of commentaries. We have logos. We have it opened up and doing the study. We're doing the, ex, the exegetical guide, right? Because, you know, we didn't learn that much Greek. We need the guide. So we do the guide. We do all this stuff. And, we put, and then what we do is we stand up and we engage in a prolonged exercise of description of what's happening in the text rather than prescription for the people of God hearing the text. Expository preaching is more than description. It's more than commentary. It's more life-giving than moralism, and it's more life-changing than self-help. But this is, tends to be the fair in most of our churches. Description, commentary among the very Bible-oriented, and moralism and self-help among the less Bible-oriented. What does it mean to exposit the Scripture? What does it mean to engage in exposit? Whole books are written on it, but let me just explain it this way. It means to unfold and to put on display the person of God, the work of God, the calling of God, and the salvation of God. It means we open up the text and explain the meaning of this text in such a way that those who are hearing know what they are supposed to do, to believe, how they are supposed to respond. Exposition is an unfolding of truth, an applying of truth. Now, I love what it says here because when Paul talks about his goal in ministry, his calling, what drives him, what all of us should be doing, by the way, this should be our emphasis, this should be what we're about in the church and in our families, but that's another subject. We preach Jesus warning and teaching everyone. So if we're going to preach Christ, then we must warn. Now, what are we warning them of? What are we warning our listeners of? What are we, what are we screaming about? What are we crying about? We warn people of the danger of sin. We warn people of the wrath of God. There is no normal ministry. There is no fruitful ministry. There is no God-honoring ministry. There certainly is no biblical preaching if we are not warning those who are listening to us of the danger of sin, and of the wrath of God. Otherwise, what are we doing? I mean, if there isn't something to warn against, then don't we all have something better to do? I can go watch John Wick again. That movie never gets old. That's exciting. I like it. I feel good. I feel like John Wick after that. I'm like like John... Like, I mean, shorter or chubbier and less armed, but still, you know, like, I would rather, I would rather spend my, if, if, there, if the stakes aren't very high, then what are we doing? We warn people because the stakes are high. Normal ministry isn't easy. Normal ministry isn't comfy. It doesn't always feel good. In fact, normal ministry, when it comes to expository preaching, oftentimes feels bad before it feels good. Because we have to warn people of the wrath of God and the sin. I was just sitting down with a young couple. They're coming to church, and according to them, they love me. They really like me. And so they, and uh, he's Catholic background, and she's like Baptist-ish background. And so I guess we're Catholic Baptist-y to them. They, like, it's a good meeting place. And so they're getting married. They're thinking about getting they're engaged, you know. And so we have the talk. And I'm like, so, you guys, uh, you guys having sex? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, how do you, how do you, like, there's just, there's no framework. If you're talking to people who are in the world, if you're talking to people who are not grounded in Scripture, they just don't have any framework to understand why something like this would be a problem. 
So now what I have to do is I have to warn them effectively without, without making them run out the door and never wanting to listen to me again. I have to warn them about the danger of their sin. There's danger associated with it. We warn people of the danger of sin, the wrath of God, so that we can properly teach them the truth of God. You see that we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone, expository preaching, expository ministry, teaches. You guys remember the Great Commission, right? It's kind of an important passage. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he gives us this, this great commission. To what? To make disciples. Teaching everyone everything that Jesus commanded us to do. If teaching is a part, an essential part, an absolutely critical part of normal preaching, of expository preaching, if teaching is supposed to be in there, that means that we have to be offering to the people an an experiential theology. We're not giving TED Talks. I know TED Talks are sexy and cool. Like, let's do the TED Talk thing. You know, because it's, it's powerful, it's dynamic, it arrests the attention, it keeps people, like, look, we get the most com- effective communicators talking about the most cutting-edge ideas. And like Eric said, that's gone 10 seconds after you're dead. Experiential theology, when we preach Christ, when we preach expositionally, we are offering substance, we are offering truth, we are holding out Jesus himself. And as we do this, we do this with wisdom, right? With all wisdom. Teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is real knowledge. This is not a vague ideology that ultimately you can take or leave. This is real knowledge, practical, accessible knowledge. This is not empty philosophy. When we preach normally, we open our Bibles And we proclaim Jesus to everyone who will listen. So we preach Christ, not ourselves. We preach Christ, not our church. This is normal vibe. This is normal ministry. And we can do this. Right? So... A normal ministry preaches Christ, and a normal ministry aims at maturity. Why do we do this? We proclaim Christ. Why? So that we may present everyone, everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's, That's the desire. So we should ask, right, what is our goal? What are we aiming at? What are we going for in our churches, in our ministry, in our denomination, in our conferences? What are we aiming at? What's the ideal? What are we jonesing for? Big church, nothing wrong with big church, but is that what we're going for? Want to get big? Is it about the experience of a gathering? Maybe, maybe we're not about size. Maybe we are about cultural relevance. The idea is to be a people who are so culturally relevant the world recognizes us as a part of them and there's virtually no distinction at all except for the Jesus fish on the back of our car. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Cultural relevance, maybe it's, maybe it's to be a movement. I can't tell you how many planters that I've assessed who, who want to, uh, they're going to come into a city and they're like, oh, I'm not planting a church. I'm like, oh, no, what, what are you doing then? Oh, I'm creating a movement. I'm like, oh, wow. Tell me about this movement. 
that's not going to exist ever. I'm excited to hear about it. Tell me about your, your movement. Tell me how you're going to come into Chicago and take over the city for Jesus. And he'll be gone. They're gone. They're always gone in a few years. What are we about? What's the goal? What do we want more than anything? I mean, if God says, I'm, I'm, I can give you whatever you want, what do you want for your church? Is it size? Is it curb appeal? Is it, is it cultural influence? Is it, is it being distinct, culturally uh, unique? Maybe your aim is to build a platform for yourself. I know all about platforms. I'm usually standing on one because I'm five foot two. Platforms can be helpful. Platforms can be helpful because it gives an amplified voice to someone who may have something to say. Platforms aren't bad. But when you live for platforms, when you seek to build your platform, when you become in your ministry, in your preaching, in your heart about your opportunity to do more, you begin to miss the proper aim of the normal pastor. The normal pastor in normal ministry builds up others, not himself. We are not about ourselves. We're not about our church. It's not about us. It's about seeking the edification of the people of God, not the enterprise of celebrity pastors. And we can do this. We can do that. We can't all be celebrity pastors. And who wants to be? But some of us do, right? But we can do this. The goal, the aim, the goal in thought. We want our people to be like Jesus in thought, in affection, in action, in thought. We want our people to be like Jesus in thought, in affection, in action, in theology, and in faith. We want our churches to be filled with people who are filled with the Spirit. That's what we want. We want people to attain to the fullness of God in them. Look at Ephesians. Just listen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Listen up. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's the goal. Everything else is dressing. Everything else is gravy. It may be nice, but it really isn't what we should be about. Because when we're, when we're mature like that, then, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, that's called expository preaching, by the way, generally. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. That's the goal, that the people of God would become mature and look increasingly like Christ. The normal pastor is outward oriented towards those under his care. He's not seeking to gain from them, but to give to them. So we ought to ask, we ought to evaluate ourselves, what is my aim? What do I really want? Not what do I say that I want, but what do I really want? 
What do I think about at night when I'm lying in my bed and I can't go to sleep and I'm thinking about the church? What do I want? Maturity? Godliness? Or something else? A normal ministry will preach Christ. A normal ministry will aim at maturity. And a normal ministry works hard. Now, if you've been involved in ministry at any level, then you should know that ministry is hard work. We need to embrace it. But I love the way Paul says it here. And he says it this way at a few different places in Scripture. But here in verse 29, it says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. I labor for this. Labor. What kind of labor? Manual labor? Childbirth labor? Yes, actually. Paul uses both analogies. Labor. Some of you all don't know what labor is. Hard work. I think most of you probably do. I know manual labor because that's what I did. As soon as I was... In fact, I, was, I started working jobs when I was 14 because uh, I wanted money. And, uh, and I knew the one way I could get money... Uh, legally, was to get a job. So I lied to the employers and told them I was 16 and I started working. Um, I wanted to work and I generally found myself working manual labor jobs, everything from busting tires and in a tire shop to uh, painting houses to digging ditches to shoveling asphalt uh, and building roads, whatever it was, I tended to favor manual labor. I actually liked it. Even though labor means time, labor means pain. And when Paul says, we labor in ministry, it means more than, hey, we work hard. It means more than, I roll up my sleeves and my hands get dirty. He means it's painful. The ministry hurts. Normal ministry hurts. And it doesn't always hurt for the same reason. Sometimes it hurts because you're being betrayed by people whom you've been loving and serving. Sometimes it hurts because you're so invested in people and you see them literally killing themselves. Not seeing that they are made in God's image and made for his glory and pleasure. We are made to work hard. Normal ministry is not a soft job. I make fun uh, of myself a lot, <laughs> easy target. And uh, one of the ways I notice is that I have the softest silk pillow hands of any man I know. Uh, because these days, I, I just use a pencil, and I don't even tap on the keyboard very much. I like a pencil. Too much, too much hard contact on the keyboard. So I have really soft, silky smooth, not even girly hands, but like scary, artificial, like flesh hands. They are weird. And uh, so I shake guys' hands all the time, and I know it's like, this guy's got calluses. He just cut me with the calluses on his hands. There's one human being that has hands softer than me. It's Al Mohler, by the way. That's a fact. You can Google it. So um, I, I, I shake all these guys' hands, and I know it's like, I've got really soft hands. Because I, I'm, no, I'm no longer, my wife has harder hands than I do. She likes to put stuff together at the house. All that. I don't do that stuff. All that to say, ministry may not put calluses on your hands, but... Normal ministry will put calluses on the hands of your soul because it is always intensely hard work. Because this is a labor, and Paul says it is a striving. You know what it means to strive, right? This, this, this indicates ongoing, continual, agonizing. 
agonizing. That doesn't sound like fun. Who wants to sign up for a ministry of agony? Let's do it. Got my MDiv with an emphasis in agony at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. They don't have that track, actually. It's not there. How do you prepare people for this? For this kind of normal ministry where you're saying you're signing up for pain. You're signing up for heartache. This agony that you will experience in normal ministry will only be there or will be there to the degree with which you actually love the people under your charge. Because if you don't care, if you're not invested, if you're not willing to die for them, then you won't won't feel a thing. There's no agony. So their marriage is crumbling. So they're addicted to pain pills. So they've been caught in adultery. So they can't stop getting high. So they were caught by their wife trying to hook up with a stranger on Craigslist, which, by the way, that was probably a dude, not a girl, whatever. These are all things that I'm dealing with and have dealt with at my church that I planted with my friends. And I could just be like, (laughs) glad it's not me, if I didn't care, if I didn't love them, if those people weren't just as much my family as my daughters and my sons. Normal ministry feels this stuff because we actually care. These are not members of a corporation. They are our family, our brothers and our sisters. Now here's the thing, and this is maybe the most important thing that's on my heart right now. That a normal ministry preaches Christ. You guys know that. I'm just, it's just cheerleading going on. That's all that we're doing when I say that. Uh, that we're going to aim for maturity. Yeah, we're all on the same page. Like we, like, we get this. But here's the thing where I think a lot of us screw up. When I say that we work hard, we're called to work hard, I think we get confused here because either on one hand, some of us think, I got this because I'm alpha dog. Like, I, I, I'm gifted. I'm strong. I can, I can get it done. I, I, see the, I, I see the calling of God and I see the giftedness that I have and I can, I can do this. And you will burn out. You will come to nothing if you are not rescued. And then there are those of you on the other end of the spectrum who have come to see the task that God has put before me is an impossible job. I cannot do it. And you're about to give up. We work hard and can work so hard in ministry in the midst of an impossible responsibility given to us by God, not because we can do this, not because we can somehow muster up the strength or that we can somehow pick up the skill, but because God is faithful to empower us to do the impossible. Think about what you are supposed to be doing in your ministry. How hard is that? How, how impossible is this task? The people that you have to lead or forgive or serve, the people who are crumbling and falling, the people who are angry and bitter, just think about the things that you're called to do in your life as a normal Christian, as a normal pastor. You got to see that it's impossible to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you instead of punching them in the face with brass knuckles, which would feel way better. Right? I mean, you think about it. Think about the things that God calls you to do. To suffer well. Suffer patiently. These are impossible things. And, and, and I don't think they're just impossible for me because I'm a mess up. I, I, know, I know that. I think they're impossible for you too. 
What are the things that God calls us to do? Just, let's just think of a few of them. To witness, right? to testify. It's an impossible task. It's an impossible task. We, we, the idea like, oh, I, I can witness, I can share the gospel, I go out and, and do all of this, that's, that's, that's great. Okay, so there are some people who are more extroverted, who like to go out and talk to people who really don't want to talk to you, and, uh, and you're going to tell them about Jesus. That's great, but that's not really the, the goal there, is it? The goal is that in your witnessing, in your testifying, that someone would be brought from death to life. It's impossible. How's God going to use you to accomplish that? How can you even pull it off? You see, I labor for this striving with his strength that powerfully works within me. So think about this basic call to be a witness, to be one who testifies. Testifying is like, easy for some people because when they think of, oh, I'm going to testify, they, to testify for some people is like a, a verbal affirmation from the congregation when the preacher is hot. That's what it means to testify. Not a bad thing. That's not what the Bible means. To witness or to testify means to tell the truth about Jesus to the world. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Jesus say to the church, to the normal Christians? He doesn't say, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So yes, the Holy Spirit is coming, but why is the Holy Spirit coming? A lot of reasons. One of them, though, is very specifically to empower you to do the impossible, to do what you don't have in you to accomplish. Specifically, Jesus says, it's to be a witness. You are not ready to be the witness of Jesus apart from the Spirit. You are not capable of being an effective witness apart from the power that God gives you. You don't have it in you. You don't have the gas in the tank. You don't have the engine. You've got to have this divine empowerment to pull this off. Spiritual warfare. Apart from God's divine power and enablement, you will fail. You think you're stronger than the devil? You're not. You're made lower than the angels in your fallen state and... Those fallen angels are looking for ways to destroy you. A few verses here. Philippians chapter 10. Just a few verses here. 3 through 5. For although we Verses 3 through 5. For although we live, but they are powerful through God. For the demolition of strongholds. What are strongholds? We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The essence of spiritual warfare deals with faith and unbelief, sin and righteousness. And so when, you, when you're called to engage in normal Christian life and normal pastoral responsibilities, we're talking about a spiritual warfare that you cannot win apart from divine enablement. Think about this. You have to fight the devil. You need God's help. You have to fight the world. You need God's help. But most of the time in spiritual warfare, you're taking up arms against yourself. You're trying to take every thought captive. How are you going to beat you? That's who you are. 
The only way that you can beat you, the only way that you can overpower you, the only way that you can win this war against yourself is if God grants you divine power to do so. It's not going to happen. As hard as we will work, as much strategy as we can put together, we will not be successful apart from God's divine power. We need his strength to witness, to engage in warfare. We need his strength and his power just so that we can hope. Hope is hard, and some of you know this because you're in churches right now where you are suffering, where things are not unfolding the way that you had hoped that they would, and you are, you've lost a sense of hope for the future. Where do we get hope? Like Some people are just super confident. I hate these people. They're super confident, right? Because like like, I, I have to fake confidence in order to have any kind of it because I'm just like naturally a self-loathing person who does not have a lot of confidence. So, and in fact, the only reason I can even preach is because in my mind, and I think in reality, but I think in my mind, I'm not, it's not about me. It's about this thing that I'm trying to help you see. Um, I, super confident people, I'm kind of in awe of them and I don't like them because they're, they're able to just kind of enter into situations and not really feel awkward or weird. And I feel awkward all the time. Now, those people can sometimes have a a kind of optimism that is not hope. Some people are just optimistic. They're they're also annoying. Optimists are annoying. They're like, it's 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 all going to work out. We got this. It's good. Without really thinking through, like, well, like let's let's look at let's look at some stats, for example. Let's just start with stats. Look at stats and see how that plays itself out. Well, I'm not a statistic. No, you're not. You're a person made in the image of God. But you will fall into a statistic, and it'll probably be this one because that's normally what happens. And so, like these people that are super optimistic, they have no problem. That's not hope. Biblically, hope is an assured anticipation of what God is going to do. That's hope, biblically. It's an assured anticipation of what God is going to do. It's not wishing. It's not optimism. It's a divinely empowered certainty. And look at Romans 15. Or just listen, Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope, good news, he is the God of it, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How are you going to overflow? That's a little bit. I would, some of you just want a little bit of hope. Lord, just a dash, just a dusting of hope would be great. Make my day so much easier. God says you can overflow with hope, but it's only going to come by the Spirit when he gives you divine power. You can have that kind of confidence, not in yourself, but in God. We need divine power for these things. This is the normal pastor life. To witness, to war, to have hope, to endure in the face of difficulty. You know what's going through Paul's mind and his heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Verses 8 and 9. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. Ha, 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 ha. I know thorn in the flesh. I hear it every time somebody mentions this passage when I'm around. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger from Satan, he calls it. It is some kind of affliction that causes him pain and distress. We don't know what it is, so stop pretending it's his eyes. We don't know. So Paul is distressed. He is in pain, and he is, says he's pleading with God to take it away. And God says, no. That's going to stay right there. I'm not going to take it away. How's Paul going to endure... In the midst of all the things he has to do, and on top of it now, he has this affliction. 
Concerning this, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Remember, John was preaching on this. That it would leave me three times. I tend to think that, I don't think he asked three times and was like, peace out, three's good, that's it, I'm done. I think he pleaded with God for three periods of time. I think this was prolonged prayer. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you. That means no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Paul, you know you need my power. You know the labor. You know the striving that you have to do in order to be a normal pastor. You know that you need my power. Now, how are you going to get even more of my power? How is my power going to be made perfect in you? Through your afflictions and your weaknesses so that you become more and more dependent upon me for that power. The normal pastor is weak. He's not strong. He's not a baller. He's not the guy on top. He's frail. And I can tell you this in all sincerity. The guys that have been preaching here this, yesterday and today, those are weak dudes. And I'm not saying they're weak dudes compared to me. I'm the weakest of all of them. These are frail men who admit it, who know it. But they have more confidence than most guys that I know because their confidence is not rooted in themselves, but it's rooted in Jesus. And they have this divine power to go about the tasks that God has given them. They can endure, witness war. They they can do it all, not because they are great, but because Jesus is great. That's a normal ministry. You see, in the end, Jesus is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says as much in verse 24. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you have Jesus, then you have all the power that you need to do what God calls you to do. Now I say that I think this is most important because when I think about myself and the guys that I know, the guys who coach me and the guys that I coach in ministry... What we're really having to deal with is where am I at? Where am I at? Where has God placed me? What am I facing? What's the status of my soul? Not just my ministry. What's the state of my mind? So where are you at? You've got to to be able to pin this down. Are you downcast? Are you afraid? Are you just done? Like you're just done? Like you've tried it all, and it's been a long run, and you don't have anything left. Maybe you're just ready to walk away. Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you are ruined. Maybe you, even in your privilege of being a leader, been sleeping with your friend's wife, or addicted to porn, Drinking deep from the bottle, and no one else is around at night, so that you can stop thinking about all the things that you suck at. Maybe you are ruined. And you think, there is no way forward for me. How can I begin to do what God calls me to do right now? Because for some of you, it may mean hanging it up. 
For others of you, it might mean taking a break for a time. But for most of you, it means to get going. How am I going to do what God wants me to do next? How are you going to do what God wants you to do next in your normal life? And do it by one of the, not the worst, that's that's high of God. That God would never ask you to do something that you couldn't do. In fact, I'm inclined to believe that the only thing God, God asks us to do things we can't do all the time. In fact, I'm inclined to believe that the only thing God asks us to do are things we can't do on our own. We can't do them. But the things that God does call you to do, he empowers you to do. You don't have it in you, but he gives you what you need and then some. You can repent. You can be restored. Your head can be lifted. Your life can be renewed. You can be revived. You can bear fruit. You can be successful by God's standards, if not the world's. You can have courage. What is God calling you to do in your normal ministry, in your normal life? Clarify it. Articulate it. What's God calling you to do? Write it down. Share it with your wife. Share it with your friends. Talk to the staff. What is it that God has called you to do? And do you see that it's impossible? Because until you see that it's impossible, I don't think it's going to happen. Can you see that it's impossible? And then, once you know that God has called you to do something that you simply cannot do, then you're ready to receive divine power and enablement. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against you, my church. You weak Sinful, frail, forever failing band of misfit half-believers. We persevere and overcome in normal ministry because God is with his people to empower us to do the things that only God can do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us from unrighteousness as we hold fast to Jesus. God, we pray that you would revive us, reform us, that you would lead us, that you would unite us as brothers and sisters at this conference, in our churches. And Lord, that we would be men and women, that we would be people who are serious and zealous about your glory and your people. Lord, we want to be faithful in preaching the whole counsel that comes from your lips. We want to be faithful in seeking the maturity of your people, that they would be more like Jesus. God, we want them to be more godly than we are. And God, we want to work hard. We want to labor and strive. We want to put sweat and blood into it, but we know, God, that it won't bear fruit unless your power is with us. So we offer up our desires for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.